It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. It was, and there's no other way to put it, a perfect storm. When I arrived at work yesterday to put together Media Buzz, there was breaking news on multiple fronts, all of which we had to digest and decide how to deal with in our hour on Fox News. So I'll take you behind the scenes a little bit because it was a fascinating exercise and a challenging one in live television. In live television, you got to take the stuff as it happens. Now, I knew uh, going to work, because we'd planned this all week, that we were going to spend a lot of time on the chaos and the carnage in Afghanistan. That was built into the process. But I also knew that we had this monster hurricane, Hurricane Ida, barreling down on Louisiana, expected to make landfall during our hour. Now, I, originally, I thought we would take a reporter uh, from the Weather Center uh, for about a minute or so at the top of the show, maybe uh, at the halfway mark as well. But by the time the, uh, the winds got to 150 miles an hour, uh, it was clear we were looking at a potentially very devastating storm. So we had to get up to speed on that, and we had to get reporters in different places. We had a reporter, a reporter in New Orleans. We had a reporter in Lafayette, Louisiana. We also had a meteorologist dealing with the mechanics of the storm. And this had very special resonance for me because it happened on the 16th anniversary of Hurricane Katrina. Now, everybody in the country remembers the uh, the huge death toll and the absolute uh, horrifying devastation of Hurricane Katrina. I went down to New Orleans some months after Katrina um, to do a story and was stunned, was just personally stunned. I mean, here it was months later at how slow the rebuilding efforts were, not just in the city of New Orleans, but out in the suburbs, mile after mile, these nice suburban houses, and they were all unoccupied. Uh, people had to get out so quickly that I remember going up to one and seeing, you know, little girls, stuffed animals, uh, on the floor, or out on the lawn, perhaps. Um, and the problem with Katrina, because we now know today, as I'm speaking to you, there's only been one reported death. Uh, it is now just a tropical storm. So the worst of the initial impact is over. And I don't want to minimize it because uh, at least the last time I looked, more than a million people in Louisiana were without power. I mean, you have a storm of that ferocity with those uh, kind of winds. You knock down a lot of power lines. You got a lot of people without power. Uh, and then the question is, how long will it be without power? How long does it take the utilities to get everybody back up and running? But the thing about Katrina was it was the aftermath of the hurricane that was so devastating. It was the flooding uh, that did the real damage because you have so many low-lying areas, particularly in some of the poorer neighborhoods uh, in and around New Orleans. And, you know, it's, so it's a very area that's very vulnerable to a devastating strike. So we'll have to see uh, today, tomorrow, the next day, uh, whether or not the damage gets worse, even though the storm may have moved on and, you know, maybe the remnants of it is a tropical storm, maybe moving up the coast. At the same time, um, soon after I got to work, this is about 8 in the morning Eastern, there were first initial reports, it wasn't even clear that it was true, and then it hit the wires, that there had been an explosion in Kabul right near the airport. And so my initial instinct, we had no information about it, and we obviously weren't going to go on the air without anything that was confirmed, was that this was another terrorist bombing, or potentially was another terrorist bombing, 
didn't know if there were casualties, didn't know what the circumstances were, didn't know if there was a few people killed or, as happened you know, in the airport bombing late last week, uh, were any uh, American service members killed, were Afghans killed? I mean, that bomb, and it turned out to be one bomb. It was the Pentagon that said two bombings, one across the street at a hotel. Everybody went with it. It wasn't the media's fault. The Pentagon, uh, in the fog of a war, thought there was a second bombing, later had to correct that about 24 hours later. In any event, uh, we just didn't know how widespread it was. So then more information came in. About an hour before airtime, I learned that um, actually it was a U.S. military strike, a drone strike. It wasn't uh, uh, an explosion aimed at our forces. It was a, It was a rocket attack carried out by our forces, said to be, according to initially it was just unnamed sources, said to be aimed at a vehicle that was carrying multiple bombs. There was no words. This car was getting ready to do another suicide bombing. Again, no word on civilian casualties. We've since learned that there were civilian casualties. I know in these attacks, uh, the U.S., and this has always been true, and this is true in many of the bombings in Iraq, always tries, not always successfully, obviously, to avoid killing innocent civilians. So fortunately, uh, we had Fox's national security correspondent, Jennifer Griffin, stationed at the Pentagon. She was checking with her sources. She was giving updates. She was supposed to be in the second segment of the show. We decided to move her up to the top. Also had to deal with the hurricane. So meanwhile, we're, we're truncating things. We're throwing things out. You know, when you book a television show, an hour of live TV, you've got studios lined up. You've got remotes. You've got elements. You've got sound bites rewriting scripts, uh, you know, all of which is comes with the territory. That's the biz. It's just rare that it's not just one major story, but a series of what we call Fox News alerts. This is a Fox News alert. What's happening with the storm? What's happening in Afghanistan? What's happening to the evacuation efforts? What was the nature of this U.S. military strike? Was it successful? So this is the second retaliatory strike ordered by or authorized by President Biden and the Pentagon. And I must say, the people in the control room, the producers, the guests, uh, all did a great job. Uh, the correspondents in the field getting wet. Uh, you know, television loves extreme weather. And as I said, you know, this wasn't just the previous week. I had to deal with what was a tropical storm, but the reason it got so much attention, it was aimed at places like the Hamptons and Martha's Vineyard. Uh, this, of course, aimed at Louisiana and the whole Gulf Coast, uh, but with far greater fierceness uh, and gathering strength very very quickly. Uh, so after uh, Jen Griffin gave us the news, I had a fascinating talk with her. I mean, she has been going to Afghanistan since 1993 when she was based in Islamabad. Uh, she has covered this war throughout. She knows the terrain. She knows the issues. She knows many of the military people. She knows many of the commanders. She knows all the top people at the Pentagon. And she's done this regardless of which president is in office. And so I was able to get a kind of a backstage view of her from her about the way in which you cover these things. And, you know, at many briefings over the last week, she has stood up and very knowledgeably said, well, what about this? How can you completely rule out that the Taliban weren't involved in or acquiescing in the suicide bombing that was so devastating last Thursday? Um, and so I asked her, you know, is it hard to challenge these, these uh, officials at these briefings? She said, that's not hard at all. What's hard, because we have the information, we have the context. I know Afghanistan, I know a lot of military people. What's hard is getting to what she called ground truth. 
finding out in real time what's happening there and then using that information to question top officials. Um, she said that uh, also, you know, it's been very upsetting for her uh, personally to think of all the American allies, the Afghans who helped us out during this 20-year war to be left behind during a live shot during the week. She said that this was um, just uh, a national shame that so many of these Afghans, because of the deadline and because of the chaos, are being left behind. On my program, I said, you know, well, how, how does this affect you personally? Because you've gotten to know so many of these military people and our Afghan allies over the years. She said, That's no, there's no doubt. This is the hardest part of the job, said Jennifer Griffin. The emotions, keeping them in check, staying focused to ask the tough questions of the Pentagon when you know there are individuals who have lost loved ones, colleagues. This has been one of the most challenging two weeks of reporting of my life. So let me pause here for a second. I just want to note before we get too deeply into the podcast, uh, the passing of Ed Asner. Uh, I was surprised by how much attention it's gotten because, you know, he hasn't been a major figure on the air in a couple of decades, although he's voiced, you know, some cartoon features and things like that. But Ed Nasner, on two different shows, and in, in, in my haste, I got this wrong on Twitter. First, he was on the Mary Tyler Moore show um, as the uh, gruff uh, guy at the television station dealing with the likes of, you know, Crazy Anchorman. Ted Baxter, and there's that famous scene, everybody's replaying it, where she's applying for the job, and she says, um, and he looks at her, and he says, you know what, you've got spunk, and she's kind of smiling, she says, well, I, and he says, I hate spunk, I mean, he was the classic curmudgeon character, and then, after that, he got the spinoff show, um, Lou Grant, which was about a newspaper, a fictional newspaper in California. He was the city editor. He had a couple of, uh, it was like an underdog paper. He had a couple of reporters. And a, a lot of people, including, according to a tweet by Peter Baker of the New York Times, says it was that show in the late 70s that got them inspired to go into journalism. I was already a newspaper reporter, a young one to be sure. Uh, and so I was just fascinated by the plots and the very sophisticated way I thought um, that Asner and Lou Grant, as Lou Grant, dealt with this. Um, I also noted, and I got some flack for this, I said, look, he was a very outspoken liberal activist. I wasn't saying that to denigrate him. It was part of his persona. In fact, uh, he was the president for a couple terms of the Screen Actors Guild. He spoke out in 1982 very forcefully about the U.S. backing uh, dictatorial regimes in Latin America. It caused a big political controversy, and it was during the backlash over that, I don't know if that was the only reason, but according to an AP story, that Lou Grant was canceled. Uh, so that was part of Asner's legacy as well. He, he um, was very much of a political activist in, in addition to being a tremendous actor. And Lou Grant was 91. Right, let me come back now to the war because the latest on it today, uh, as I'm sitting here uh, doing the podcast, is that there was more U.S. military actions shooting down rockets aimed at the Kabul airport. This morning, well, this this morning, uh, U.S. time, one day after uh, the report I met, referred to earlier that we ended up leading with a drone strike against the vehicle, a vehicle full of explosives, and it turns out that there were civilian casualties, and that's regrettable. This was in retaliation. Remember, President Biden said, "We will hunt you down. We will not forgive. We will not forget," for the ISIS K suicide bombings that claimed. Uh, more than 100 lives, including 13 of our brave American service members, President Biden, going to Dover 
yesterday uh, to honor those fallen heroes as they came back. So this morning, oh, Politico has a piece this morning about describing in sort of TikTok fashion that we had intelligence, that the U.S. had intelligence, that there was going to be a terrorist bombing at the Hamid Karzai airport. Uh, And this is very frustrating to report. There was a secure video conference room uh, at the Pentagon Wednesday morning. Remember, the attack took place on Thursday. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin told more than a dozen of the DOD's top leaders to make preparations for an imminent uh, term of art is mass casualty event, according to classified detailed notes obtained by Politico. General Mark Milley, chairman of the Joint Chiefs, warned of significant intelligence indicating the Islamic State's Afghan affiliate ISIS-K was planning a complex attack. So they knew about it, and the information was shared with commanders in Kabul, and they wanted to close the Abbey Gate, where a lot of American citizens were still coming through and having their papers looked at. That's where the suicide bombing took place. I don't believe people get the incredible amount of risk on the ground, Austin said, according to these classified notes. But why wasn't the Abbey Gate closed earlier? The reason is... American commanders on the ground decided to keep the gate open a little longer than they wanted to allow their British allies, who were accelerating their own withdrawal, to continue evacuating their personnel based at the Barron Hotel right near the airport. So that turned out to be a tragic decision. It's understandable that we wanted to help out the Brits. At the same time, had we closed the Abigate earlier, perhaps that tragedy, very likely that tragedy, would have been avoided. Uh, A lot of people writing columns now about the decision to withdraw from Afghanistan, and I think it's important, I tried to make this point on the show, to separate the decision to get out, which, remember, that was originally made by Donald Trump. Yes, he now says that he wouldn't have allowed this and Biden should resign, and you have some Republicans calling for Biden to be impeached. But the withdrawal process was set in motion by Trump, continued by Biden, who also wanted to get out, Uh, Because of a feeling, as Biden has said many times, that after 20 years, um, the Afghan government, as we learned with the fleeing of the president, wasn't strong enough. The Afghan military wasn't strong enough to defend that country. And so how many more generations of Americans would be sent there? You had young American servicemen killed in the suicide bombing who were barely born when the Afghan war started. So Max Boot, a column in the Washington Post, said, if you ask me who's to blame, I would point not only to Biden, but to former President Trump, and to all of us, the people of America. By carrying out this pell-mell withdrawal from Afghanistan, the leaders, our leaders, after all, were only giving us what we wanted. Well, look, I have to jump in here, and he acknowledges this, that Biden just completely botched this and should have secured the evacuations first. Uh, But as Boot points out, you know, it was Trump who let 5,000 Taliban terrorists free, which certainly undermined the morale of our Afghan allies. Um, Biden was afraid. So why didn't he pull people out earlier while we still had the, the stronger military presence there? Boot says that Biden was afraid of a xenophobic backlash from bringing so many Afghans to the United States. Well, he's going to get that anyway. Uh, second, he was concerned about sending a signal of no confidence to the Afghan government. So that's the counter-argument. You start pulling our people out, you start pulling people out of the embassy, you start pulling uh, you know, Americans who were there visiting family, And the Afghan government that we supported, the corrupt Afghan government, I should add, collapses immediately. And, and of course, the betting by the Pentagon and by the president was that we at least 
if the Taliban were to take over, at least it would take several months. Well, that to prove to be a tremendous miscalculation. Uh, Boot adds, the truth is most Americans paid little attention to Afghanistan until recently. The three major television networks devoted a total of five minutes of evening news coverage to the country last year. So, you know, there were conflicting feelings there. People wanted out, but they didn't want the consequences. National Review has a piece uh, saying, we're glad the forever war is ending. Uh, As embarrassing, disgraceful, and ugly as Joe Biden has made our exit, be assured he does deserve the blame for his own plan going awry. It is not nearly as ugly as the last decade of corruption, death, and mayhem, things that never seemed to bother advocates of the forever war until we ceased participating in it. Now, this is a point that, you know, no Americans' lives are being lost, no Americans are being wounded, and that was the case since early 2020 because that was the deal the Taliban made in exchange for uh, our Trump-negotiated withdrawal. It is impossible to overstate, says this piece of National Review, how much idealism has been lost in 20 years of war in Afghanistan. Um, advocates of hard Wilsonianism, that would be a reference to Woodrow Wilson, told anyone who might raise the slightest hesitation about democratizing the Middle East that we were bigots. Oh, you don't believe in this? The government we helped create in Afghanistan, says this piece, was fantastically, opulently, and openly corrupt. An audit of just $106 billion of DOD spending showed that over 40% of it went to insurgents, criminal syndicate, or corrupt Afghan officials. We gave money to warlords and militia leaders who promptly used U.S. resources to murder political rivals or humiliate tribal enemies or just spirited themselves out of the country with millions of dollars in their suitcase. So it's a it's an ugly, difficult, frustrating, and dark picture what happened over the last 20 years. And of course, the mission changed. You know, we went to Afghanistan after 9-11 because the Taliban were harboring Osama bin Laden. And it was our mission to get bin Laden. Took 10 years, finally happened in 2011 in the Obama administration. And it was our mission to topple the Taliban and make sure that Afghanistan would no longer be a safe haven for global terrorism. Of course, it could now be a safe haven again. The, Af- the Taliban are saying they don't want to do that. I don't know that anybody trusts their words unless they decide it's in their self-interest because they need international aid. Uh, but by and large, you know, we saw this in Vietnam. We saw this to some extent in Iraq. And we have seen it now, tragically, after 20 years of war in Afghanistan, that for all of the, the power and awesome prowess and sheer bravery of the American military machine, the greatest military machine the world has ever known, we can't, over an extended period of time, years and years and years, prop up these weak regimes if their own people aren't willing to fight for what are, in essence, civil wars. Vietnam was a civil war. It was a domino, to use the LBJ terminology of the Cold War era, in the Cold War. And that's why, you know, what an absolute tragedy looking back and ultimately, you know, the North took over South Vietnam. And now we have diplomatic relations with communist Vietnam. But at the time, it was seen, well, if we don't stop them here, they'll come to our shores. Uh, The Iraq War, the government we backed has kind of, sort of survived, but there's still a civil war going on there. This is going on without our presence. 
Um, and we invaded, of course, under George W. Bush on the pretext of WMD, weapons of mass destruction, of which none were found. And then Afghanistan, which I say, good motives going in, uh, get Osama bin Laden. But of course, it turned into nation building. It turned into, we were going to help uh, this state that had never been united, that had uh, you know centuries of tribal warfare, um, that outlasted the Soviets, that outlasted other foreign powers, and now is outlasted America, become a Western-style democracy. Well, that was never going to happen. And we overestimate at our peril our ability to bring democracy to parts of the world where it has just never been seen, never been done, never been achieved. Don't go anywhere. More BuzzMeter coming your way in just a moment. All right, let me move on now to COVID-19, because obviously in recent days that has been uh, overshadowed by Afghanistan and by um, Hurricane Ida. Uh, The New York Times reporting this morning that the daily average for hospitalized COVID patients in the U.S. is now more than 100,000. This is not new daily cases. That's at about 156,000. People who are seriously ill enough that they have to go into the hospital more than 100,000 of those people a day. That's just a figure, the average for the last week. That is a higher figure than in any previous surge except last winter's, which is before vaccination. And of course, you know that most of the people who are going to the hospital have not been vaccinated. The influx, says the Times, is straining hospitals, particularly in certain areas, particularly this is going to be a problem in Louisiana. If people are are going in there, uh, the after effects of the storm, a lot of those beds are filled by COVID patients. It is pushing healthcare workers to the brink. Um, hospitals nationwide have increased by nearly 500% over the last two months. Hospitalizations, I should say, particularly across the southern states where ICU beds are filling up. In Florida, more than 16,000 people are hospitalized. That's the most of any state. Number two is Texas, according to Health and Human Services. Now, the latest news is that a conservative radio host named Mark Bernier 65 years old. He was an absolute mainstay for three decades, talk radio in Daytona. Well, it was announced on Saturday night that he had died from COVID-19. With great sadness, uh, the station announced WNDB, the passing of Mark Bernier, who informed and entertained listeners for over 30 years. We kindly ask that privacy is given to Mark's family during this time of grief. Now, you got to report it. It's part of the story. That, for example, just in July, so this is just last month, when Florida's Democratic Agriculture Commissioner, Nikki Freed, urged people to get vaccines on Twitter by saying the greatest generation had to defeat the Nazis to preserve our way of life. You're only being asked to get a shot, so be a patriot. Mark Bernier, Bernier excuse me, replied on the platform, should say, now the U.S. government is acting like Nazis. Get the shot. I wish we would just ban all Nazi analogies from public discourse. I really do. Um, And look, despite the fact that he crusaded against vaccines, I am sad. I am sad for his family. Uh, I know some people are like, well, these people should have known better. But what's striking about this guy and and his wife, you know, made a statement on his behalf is that some of them, when they get sick, say, you know what? I was wrong and I want to urge everyone to go back, get the vaccine. He did not do that. And that's his right. That's his view. He had that view. But I do think that um, 
when you look at the situation and you look at, um, you know, it tends to be people who are higher profile because they were radio people or big Twitter people or you name it. If they were anti-vax and they get COVID-19, and particularly if they get serious Ill, seriously ill, and of course, particularly if they die, it's going to get attention. Um, I think it's an individual decision, but I've said again and again and again and again, I don't know how anybody can look at this situation where all of the people who are getting ill now, virtually all of them, again, you get vaccinated, it doesn't mean it's absolutely positively protects you from ever getting the vaccine. There's a small percentage chance you'll get it, especially with this Delta variant. But you won't get as sick. You will have a mild case, overwhelming number of instances of the breakthrough infections. You won't have to go to the hospital and your life won't be in danger. So I want to finish up here by talking about a piece in The Atlantic by Michael Gerson. Uh, and, you know, the people who are most critical of the Republican Party now and of Donald Trump are people like Gerson, who was a Bush Republican, uh, who love the Republican Party, who devoted their lives to the Republican Party and are so upset with how the GOP is faring now in their view that they they just they are critical in a way that no Democrat or liberal or independent journalist could ever be. So he, he writes about an incident that happened over the weekend, kind of got overshadowed by all the news, but Donald Trump had a rally in Alabama. And he said, you should go out and get the vaccine. He then followed up by saying it's an individual choice, of course. But he said, I got the vaccine. It works. You should go get it. And he got booed by at least some of the Alabama crowd. So a couple days later, as Gerson reminds us, Alex Jones, the uh, conspiracy theorist and um, right-wing radio host, who Trump courted back in 2016, hit back at Trump. He played a clip of the Trump bite, and he said, BS, Trump, that's a lie. You're not stupid. Shame on you, Trump. This is Alex Jones. Seriously. Hey, if you don't have the good sense to save yourself and your political career, that's okay. At least you're going to get some good Republicans elected, and you know we like you. But my God, maybe you're not that bright. Maybe Trump's actually a dumbass, says Alex Jones. So Gerson goes on to say, the GOP base may be identifying less and less with Trump personally. That was inevitable after he left the presidency. But it is not identifying any less, he says, with the conspiracist and anti-democratic impulses that defined him over the past five years. He says, look, not long ago, Trump was viewed as avant-garde, outrageous, scandalous, America's enfant terrible. His actions were viewed as so shocking and norm-shattering that they could he couldn't be ignored in the Republican Party. However... Trump is becoming conventional, unexceptional, even something of an establishment figure. Well, if Gerson is right, that's quite a sea change. And he goes on to list a bunch of Republicans he doesn't like, uh, Lauren Boebert, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Matt Gates, and others. Uh, and he mentions Michael Flynn, Mike Lindell, the pillow guy, Rudy Giuliani, Sidney Powell, cyber ninjas, QAnon, anti-vaxxers, insurrectionists. Trump looks rather ordinary says Gerson, compared to these people. He wants credit for the vaccines that were developed during his administration. And by the way, he deserves it. They were a genuine medical milestone and uh, developed so quickly. But in some quarters of today's Republican Party, that makes Trump suspect, at least according to the likes of Alex Jones, too closely aligned with the hated Anthony Fauci, uh, another dumbass, according to that view. The dark, destructive place the GOP has found itself isn't shocking. And he basically goes into the history of MAGA and being fed uh, conspiracy theories and lies, not just by Trump, but by his allies, right-wing media, and so forth. So, you know, Michael Gerson, 
is, and he says in the piece, you know what? It is worrisome and deeply dispiriting, especially for those of us who were loyal Republicans for our entire political life until 2016. And that's why I say, you know, people like that who have left the Republican Party, and you see a lot of them on MSNBC, you know, there's Joe Scarborough or um, Nicole Wallace, you know, people who work for John McCain or who work for George W. Bush or who were, in the case of Scarborough Congressman, you know, they are among the fiercest critics. And that's why MSNBC loves them, let's face it. You don't see many, you know, the merest, less than a handful of pro-Trump Republicans on MSNBC because that doesn't play to their audience. All right, well, one other item here, because I didn't do anything light at the top. It's a little bit of a baseball story. About the New York Mets, which are having a really hard time. So, uh, New York Mets infielder, Javi Baez, hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. He's in a, something of a slump. He said yesterday that when he stood up on the field, he and other players, and did the thumbs down thing, the thumbs down gesture, to sort of boo the fans who haven't been supportive enough, he said, that's the reason. He says, oh, you know, the jeers don't bother me, but he and his teammates are, were aiming the thumbs down at fans just to let them know how it feels, according to ESPN. They've got to do better, Baez said. He says that all this, you know, the booing and the, and the jeering is putting more pressure on the team. Well, guess what? The management of the New York Mets was not very thrilled with this. Uh, the president of the team, Sandy Alderson, put out a statement saying, these comments and any gestures by him or other players with similar intent are totally unacceptable and will not be tolerated. Booing is every fan's right, and Holderson is right. You know, these athletes bask in the cheers when the team is doing well, when they're doing well, when they make a game-saving catch, when they hit a home run, when they have the game hit. If you play badly, they're going to come and boo because they love the team. You're screwing it up. It comes with the territory. They pay good money to buy the tickets to come to your ball game. The reason you get the big salaries is the television rights of fans in your local market watching at home. And if your team stinks, you get negative press coverage and you get a lot of booing, get over it. I understand the player's frustration, but not the classiest move to kind of, it's the equivalent of thumbing your nose at the people who came to see you play, who want you to win, who are your fans, but they're expressing their disapproval that you are playing badly. Any professional athlete knows this. It comes with the friggin' territory. Well, thank you all for listening. Uh, I hope you uh, had a great weekend. If you want to see any of the Media Buzz segments, you look at, can look on my Facebook or Twitter page or the Media Buzz Facebook or Twitter page. The interview with Jennifer Griffin also had a fascinating interview with Peter Ducey about uh, his interactions with Joe Biden at a press conference. Ah, I think I'll make some time to talk about that tomorrow because it's interesting just to get his viewpoint on being the Fox guy uh, who Biden often calls on now. Uh, and the contentious relationship he has with the president. Anyway, have a great day. Subscribe. It would be great. You get it in your inbox. Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, or on your Amazon device. We'll see you tomorrow with more Buzz. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com.